0: You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence Special Broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com.
1: Um, good morning. I'm Caroline Daniel. I'm editor of the Weekend FT. Um, there are copies of the FT at the back of the room, which I will be testing you on after the seminar. Um, it feels a bit like the Politburo sitting up here. So uh, we can, I'm going to be Stalin for the morning, and uh, John is going to be Putin. And I just want to introduce the panel. The panel can just sort of, we've got a great panel here this morning. Um, perhaps you can just go around introducing yourselves and then we can kick off in a moment.
2: Yeah, uh, morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Simon Bohr. I'm Director of Media and uh, Public Relations at BAA, which uh, you probably know owns Heathrow as uh, well as five other um, airports in the UK for the time being.
3: And I'm Ed Gillespie. I'm co-founder of Futera Sustainability Communications, uh, which usually floors everyone who goes, what earth does that mean in practice? Uh, But we're essentially a specialist communications agency which only works on issues around sustainability, and behaviour change is is one of our key skills.
4: I'm Lorraine Gammon. I'm a professor of design at Central St Martins. In 1999, I founded the Design Against Crime Research Centre, and I, I also run socially responsive design projects across the studios of Central St. Martins.
0: Good morning. My name is Mitch Besser. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist in Cape Town, South Africa. I'm the founder and medical director of a program called Mothers to Mothers, which provides care for pregnant women and new mothers with HIV.
5: Good morning from me, John Smythe from Engage for Change. Uh, We're a small consultancy that devises bottom-up strategy, bottom-up change, democratic change in large corporations.
1: Thank you, everyone. Um, We looked at this topic title and felt some angst about it. So rather than thinking, actually, it has one environment in it, so it has to be about Heathrow and Boris Island, we decided, no, it's got to be about environmental change and a much broader conception of the idea. So looking at political change, cultural change, um, change in your pockets. And um, I also had a really good look around this room last night, and I noticed that um, if you look at the ceiling, there is a, a three-headed dog in the room, There's a giant pig in the room, two horses, a six headed monster, two giant sea monsters, one with a long nose, um, a lion, a crab, a lobster, two centaurs, but no elephants in the room. (laughs) So with that, I'd like to just start off by asking all of the panelists to talk for a few minutes in their own areas about a particular behavior change which thrilled them or excited them or that they led. So with that, I'd like to kick off with Mitch.
0: Great. Good morning. Thank you very much. I'd like to talk briefly about the work I do in South Africa and and the genesis of it. As I mentioned, I'm an obstetrician, and I moved to South Africa in 1999 to provide services to pregnant women with HIV. And as a practitioner in the clinics, I found an enormous amount of frustration that women coming to see me were black South Africans who spoke a language that I didn't speak, who came from a culture that I didn't know. I was never going to be a mother and hopefully wouldn't be HIV positive. So there was very little I could share with them. And yet, there were things I specifically asked them to do. I asked them to take an HIV test. I asked them to take their medicines. I asked them to feed their babies in a particular way. And in spite of my teaching and pleadings, I couldn't get the mothers to do the things I've asked. And the the cultural divide between us was just so enormous, and I couldn't break it. So the, the innovation that we came up with was employing mothers living with HIV as care providers. And in our program, Mothers to Mothers, we employ women who've recently had babies who are HIV positive to come back to the clinics and provide education and psychosocial support for the women who are coming in for care, the women who are now pregnant or who've recently delivered babies. And what we find is that these women who we call mentor mothers, by virtue of their own personal experiences, are able to provide the kinds of education and support that drive behavior change that the mothers who are pregnant or recently delivered are now taking their medicines, are now feeding their babies properly, are coming back and staying in care so that they and their babies get the best possible results. And so our innovation and our efforts towards behavior change were fundamentally to employ mothers who are similarly affected to provide care. If you look at the Edelman uh, Health Barometer from 2011, what they found was that amongst people who they polled, and they polled, I think, close to 10,000 people, after doctors and nurses, peers are the number one um, mediators of behavior change, that people listen to their peers and they listen to people who are similarly affected.
1: Um, Ed. Okay, and
3: so I've been working on behavior change since we founded Futera in 2001, so we've got some great examples of uh, where this has sort of happened, because when we first started working on sustainability, it was a bit like wetting yourself whilst wearing a dark suit. Uh, No one noticed, but it gave you a warm feeling inside. Um, Now, of course, we say that action on sustainability is like teenage sex. Everyone says they're doing it. Very few people actually are, (laughs) uh, and those that are doing it are doing it quite badly. But the real challenge here is the fact that behavior change is a contact sport. You have to be prepared to get your hands dirty, Um, it's complex, Uh, people are sophisticated um, and they're also skeptical and cynical. So, just also building on Mitch's point, you know, the the messenger really matters. Who do we trust? How do we get um, these type of uh, kind of inspirations across to people? Um, And the big thing is, if you get it wrong, you can actually have completely the opposite effect. You can actually compound um, the wrong behavior, uh, which is a psychological notion of cognitive dissonance which says when people's values uh, and, and behavior are out of kilter, they, people feel a need to reconcile that tension. Uh, and so what we tend to do in terms of sustainability campaigning very effectively is to point out the disconnect or the disconnection uh, between people's values and behavior and hope that they will then change their behavior. And what they tend to do is just change their values. And so they care less about the, uh, the issue in question. Um, there's a wonderful example from um, the States where there was a primary school in New York Uh, where parents were turning up late to pick up their kids from school. So the school was getting very frustrated, the staff were having to hang around later um, to to look after the children until the parents turned up. So in order to disincentivise this behaviour, they introduced a fine. Uh, So parents who turned up late had to pay a fine um, for the the extra childcare they were effectively getting. Um, It actually had exactly the opposite effect and actually parents turned up later more often um, to pick up their children because they felt that they had sort of absolved themselves of the guilt of turning up late and were effectively paying for the additional childcare. So you have this kind of very sophisticated Challenge, Um, But the other flip side of that is if you take something like uh, cycling in London which has been a sort of big transformation over the last 10 years and cycling rates in London have been almost doubling year on year for the last decade and that's because of the kind of the complex interaction between three different areas uh, of of engagement. If you like it's the personal, the social and the infrastructural. Um, There's an enormous number of different reasons why people have personally taken up cycling. Um, Some reasons it's because they save money, it's because it's faster, uh, because it looks cool. um, You know, because ironically after the 7-7 bombings a lot of people were compelled to experiment and test out cycling. Um, So you've got lots of sort of personal different drivers. Then, of course, almost sort of playing catch up, we've got some of the infrastructural factors which have gone in, like bike lanes uh, and the city bike scheme, which have also enabled it and made it slightly easier But most crucially of all, perhaps, is the social proof is the visibility and the salience of other people cycling and being able to see other people on the roads. And so it's not a magic formula, but if you get personal, social, and infrastructural measures in place, you can generally have, and genuinely have, transformative behavior change. Uh, And I think that's what's um, incredibly exciting. And the way that Futera approaches this is to try and find the stories, if you like, uh, the narratives and and the people's experiences which bring these behavior change challenges to life, uh, to sizzle them up, to make them exciting. Exciting, uh, engaging, and inspiring, um, and to make them visible and generate this this crucial social proof. Which obviously we are social beasties. We like to know what other people around us are doing.
1: Thank you very much, Ed. Um, Lorraine. Okay. Um, what I do is um,
4: I work with young designers um, to look at the way criminals steal things, and then design user friendly, slightly wonky products to stop them. So the most recent one. Um, which came actually from the research centre, was that we realised that ATM crime is a massive problem. And we also worked out that the way people get dipped and get their cards, um, numbers stolen, via so- shoulder surfing is because people get very close. So we, we simply put some art around the cash points to make a safety zone. And in Hammersmith, we did it for about six months. And the police there argued we reduce crime by 65%. I didn't really believe them, if you want the tree. So, What we do is that we we test it again. And actually the point of that is that to do this sort of work, user-centred design, you have to do it with the people, by the people. And a lot of design for behaviour change is top down. And my argument is is that why it doesn't work is because if you don't actually find, um, I suppose, some fraternal account, some way of working with people, um, then actually it breaks down quickly. And certainly, when we sort of come up with the designs, the the community uptake, the the actual links to, like, for example, we've done bike stands that, instead of being an N-shape or an M-shape, and it means that you lock both wheels and the frame to the stand, and it's harder for fees to twist them off, and they just get the next one. Again, they've been evaluated, and what we found is that those stands actually... um, produce better locking practice which reduces crime and um, it's sort of would only work it only works because we work with really loads of cycle groups who then promoted the use of them and I I really agree my colleague here that the uptake how you communicate the process is incredibly important and it can't be a pretend process because design is tricky and to get to get things to work the story of, of those designs is really important. Like All of you have been to an organic market, and I suspect all of you have bought a carrot, but you're not just buying the carrot, you're buying the story of the carrot. And that, for us, in design terms, that's, that's what we communicate to. And it's, it's really important, the way
1: you tell the story. Thank you. Thank you. I always think carrots taste much, much nicer with stories. Um, and finally, um, Simon.
2: Um, well, I wanted to um, really talk about something that I'm not sure I'm necessarily proud or tremendously excited about but I think is, is important which is of course that it seems to me that the, the most obvious way to change behaviour and perhaps the most effective is to um, make something more expensive or to use price or cost and hit you where you hurt in, uh, in your pocket and uh, I think that you know one of the examples of, of this in the aviation industry over the last year which demonstrates how behaviour can be changed um, through pricing is that Ryanair has been tremendously successful through pricing in showing that if you can make something cheap enough, you can get people to do things they didn't even know they wanted to do in the first place. So we have today Ryanair as the largest airline uh, in Europe, overtaken British Airways by flying people to places that they had never visited before, didn't know they wanted to go. Um, in fact, even if they did want to go, it's been to go there, it's successful by taking them somewhere which isn't even there, but just close to being there just because the fare is low enough that people will do it. And Ed was just pointing out to me before the, the start of this the, uh, the, the, the paradox in, in this, that uh, Ryanair actually, um, you may have noticed this, predominantly advertises in the Telegraph. So while there are lots of people at dinner parties around uh, Hampshire and West London and the home counties who are very sniffy about Ryanair, their, their customer base is actually people going to second homes that they didn't have before those flights um, existed. So. uh, I'm not uh, not here to celebrate Ryanair, although they're obviously a very valued customer of of BAA, Um, but I do want to say that I think it tells a very important lesson about behaviour change, because it seems to me too often that the standard starting point of trying to change any behaviour is exhorting people not to do something that they currently want to do. Uh, And that seems to me to be the least effective way of actually persuading people to change behavior. So if we are going to change behavior, we need to be really clear, first of all, on what the effect is that we're trying to achieve. Uh, And then, I think, focus on how you can make sure that whatever it is that you're trying to stop or trying to encourage is appropriately incentivized or disincentivized through um, pricing um, and through some of the other measures that, uh, that, that some of the others on the panels have talked about. I think we also need to recognize that actually there are all sorts of other pressures on behavior, so the baseline that you're starting from is constantly changing. We were talking yesterday about people, I mean, the number of people here who, who are sort of checking iPads or checking their, their Twitter feeds. Um, the, the way that actually globalization and interconnectivity is, is changing beha- behavior seems to me to be a much more powerful force than exhorting people not to do things. So as we look at the society that we need to create and want to create in the future, we need to look at how the different pressures uh, on behavior are going to come from different areas, as well as um, looking at what the baseline is today. Uh, and I suppose my, my plea, uh, uh, really, my, my case would be for um, a more sophisticated form of environmentalism in that particular sphere if we're looking at, at, uh, at behavior change across society as a whole. It seems that even those people who might be convinced to actually make that change themselves will, after a short time, um, stop doing that if they notice that everyone else isn't making that change, if the result can only be achieved by the Commonwealth working together. So I think we need uh, more sophisticated environmentalism that looks at how, uh, that rather than just opposing or stopping every development, looks at how we can facilitate the things that people want to do in a more sustainable manner um, and which uh, embraces in a way that I don't think the the environmental movement does at the moment, progress and technology and science to help make that change.
5: There's an observation from me here which is that we've heard some commercial stories and some social stories and and perhaps I've got it wrong but uh, I heard in the commercial story an an element of uh, we can psychologically manipulate by pricing or whatever mechanism Whereas in the social stories, I think we heard a much more mutual approach to power sharing, uh, where a risk was taken to uh, share share that opportunity with with that community. And I just wonder whether that polarization between the commercial manipulation, quote, unquote, being deliberately uh, (laughs) controversial there, versus, if you like, this determination to share power, with the audiences could you, could you perhaps some of you comment on yes, please far away
4: I, I, I hate Ryanair and i 've used it okay, and I, 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 I think that um, the resentment of actually being forced to to go for the cheapest causes all sorts of other problems and you know my point earlier is that design that fails to involve the community um, is doesn 't work, and the top down stuff is paternalistic, but there is change happening out there, and it 's occurring linked to uh, commercial change, linked to collaborative consumption, so bartering, trading, renting things, new services for new times, um, the way they obtain them, um, is increasing on a scale that, thanks to the internet, has never been possible before. So I, I think that you know, it's a false division to say that you know, the market-led uh, paradigm compared to the social-led paradigm produces um, sort of profits that are sustainable because Apple's profits are sustainable and actually some of their practices are really, really unacceptable. So the point I want to get to is that there is a form of entrepreneurship that's occurring out there, but it's different. And that's where I hope to see change occur, not just through manipulative pricing strategies.
5: Could you just elaborate very quickly on that new form of entrepreneurialism which you seem to Consider a prize to be worth chasing. Okay, well,
4: there's there's a, there's a book that was published recently by um, I think it's Rachel Botsman and Rui Rogers called Collaborative Consumption. And what's useful about it's not the book, it's just all the list of businesses in it. I'm, I'm part of the King's Cross hub, and every week you see all these new startups. Some of them do go on to make actually quite successful businesses through different ways of changing. So, so for example, like Zipcar. People share cars now. That, before, 10 years ago, that was like a dream like I read in Marge Piercy's, um novel. Um, people share uh, uh, drills. I mean, there's all sorts of programs that run that seem to make money that, that involve people in, in sharing their resources in quite imaginative ways.
3: That goes beyond...
4: Yeah, that goes beyond It's a commercial go, business. It goes
3: beyond uh, selfish uh, collusion. Ed, do you think you were? No, just very quickly, I mean, I, I, I do think on the Ryanair example, it does, Ryanair and Michael O'Leary do tap into a sort of dark, brooding, sadomasochistic aspect of the British psyche. Uh, you know, the, the kind of, the worse the experience can be, the more we go back for it. Um, and that's probably because of the, the, the pricing factor. But I mean, I'd agree, um, uh, with, with, with what um, Lorraine is saying, in terms of there is a false distinction between the commercial and the social. We, we all influence each other all the time. We're obviously here this weekend to be influenced. You know, there is nothing wrong with a little bit of strategic leadership in terms of shifting behaviour and changing psychology. And, um, there's a wonderful book out, and we're talking about the elephant in the room, but people actually in neuroscience talk about the elephant in the skull. Because the way that we are perceiving the world around us relies on two different types of thinking. The kind of system one thinking, which is the the intuitive, reactive um, way that allowed us to survive on the savannas of Africa when we were being chased by large cats. Um, And then there's a system two, the kind of the deeper cognitive analytical type of thinking. And um, people talk about the relationship between these two systems as being like the rider and the horse. Which like, makes you think that the kind of rider has a semblance of control over what's going on. But actually, really, it's like the rider and the elephant. Um, if the elephant wants to do something, uh, then it's going to go ahead and do it. And actually, you only have a vestige uh, of conscious and overt control. And so I, I think we do need to be led sometimes. Uh, and, and actually, sort of a moral and strategic leadership, particularly around issues like climate change, is absolutely vital if we're going to incentivize and inspire people to do the right thing. We do need to be led, Mitch.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately, if you drill down, what we're trying to do is drive individual change, that whether it's on the social side or on the commercial side, we're looking for individual actions to change. And um, again, coming from the health realm, um, the the, the program I described, Mothers to Mothers, the question is, how do you take these little changes to scale? We've we've been fortunate in Africa, the program that we started 10 years ago now reaches one-sixth of all the HIV-positive pregnant women in the world. So we've been able to scale it up. But as I, as I look at health in general, I, I look at a system that's broken fundamentally, that you know the way um, health has been experienced over, over the last century, we've transitioned from um, diseases of infection, like TB and pneumonia, to diseases of consumption. And the health system, the way it's designed currently, is designed to, to essentially treat um, diseases of infection. So that if you go to a doctor, you'll, you'll share your symptoms and they'll take a history and do an exam. They'll do some tests, they'll make a diagnosis, they'll give you a therapy, and they'll send you home. Now that works fine if you have a simple infection, but when your disease is related to how much you eat, or how little you exercise, or the way you drink, or the way you smoke, the kinds of changes that are necessary are no longer, take this pill, you'll feel better in a week, but it's how do we get you to change your behaviors? And without that kind of behavior change, we're not gonna achieve health. And so our system is designed wrong. Doctors and nurses are being pushed to see more and more patients for shorter and shorter periods of time. Doctors and nurses aren't trained in behavior change. So we're trained as diagnosticians and therapeuticians. And yet what we're asking people to do is difficult. I don't have the time. I don't have the skills. And so we're not going to achieve health until we come up with a model for behavior change and build that into our health systems. Now, what we've done with Mothers to Mothers in Africa is build that into the system, that mentor mothers, peer educators are part of every patient's experience. And so when they see a doctor or nurse, maybe for two or three minutes, they also have 30 minutes to an hour with a mentor mother who can help promote the kinds of behavior change that ultimately result in the outcomes that we're looking to achieve. And we've been fortunate that our model of care has now been embraced by the United Nations. It's part of a global plan. And so that we're hoping to change systems, but the systems changes are towards how do we achieve better behaviors through the resources that we have that we can afford, and then how do we take it to scale? Okay, can I,
4: can I so Henry Cotten's work with the Southwark Circle is about exactly this, with with the National Health Service and local councils. It's about getting people to walk their dog to avoid the, the, the obesity rather than and diabetes rather than sort of being told what to do to make it fun. And actually, that's the problem with some of the strategies that I see out there. The, the, as you know, the Cabinet have a behaviour change unit and they're very taken with nudge politics that have been written up by Thaler and Soster. And They have massive problems. Nudge, you know, nudge, the idea of nudge is that You don't don't, um, ban junk food at school. You just put fruit in the canteen. And what the House of Lords found when they reviewed all the work that's been delivered in Britain on behaviour change was this, that actually individual address is not enough. Yeah, I agree with you. If you do it right, it works. But actually you have to have some policies too. And at the moment, because this government favoured deregulation, the emphasis is not on policy. It's on individual messaging. And I, I don't think that it's done in the right way. It's paternalistic, not fraternalistic, in the way I've described. And I, I, I think the strategy is wrong.
6: This is wonderful. And in a way, it's all motherhood and apple pie, and you can't be against it. But not only do you need a carrot with the story, but you need a stick with the story. Mm-hmm. And, and just to go for Mitch, HIV, when I last checked, is still an infection. And the reason that there's so much of it in South Africa is actually because of sexual violence. Women are much younger than the men they get it from. Uh, there's no action in terms of any form of encouraged testing, let alone compulsory testing. And we're not going to achieve the level of change we need in public health without sticks as well. It is actually taxes that stop people smoking, legislation that stops people smoking. We've done it with smoking. That wasn't simply encouraging people that it's you know, bad when they smoke in rooms. And so I think unless we have sticks with all of this as well, and it goes back to the discussion we were having last night, I think, about whether if every company does nice, sustainable things, it'll save the world. It won't. It'll make them feel better, but it won't save the world. And equally, I don't think we'll restore the health of populations by just uh, nudging. Sticks and carrots, other, other perspectives?
7: Um, yeah, I think um, the sticks, government action and things, we shouldn't lose perspective on all of this. I mean, some of the biggest changes have been taken by sticks. Obviously, the smoking ban... Speaking to politicians in Scotland, when they first introduced it, everybody expected riots and trouble, nothing happened, because people kind of knew it was the right thing to do. And when, and I'm quite right, when everybody was doing it together, and then they've had fantastic knock-on consequences. But we've been there before. In the National Health Service, the biggest improvements were the decision, you know, to send nurses into schools to stick needles in children uh, and inoculate them. A lot of the main advances have been taken by almost uh, coercive uh, methods but it's now clear that a lot of the challenges we face are at the edge of soft skills and behavior so the coercive without the participation the respect or some of the psychological tools I mean you know the smoking industry was using the psychological tool of uh, actresses smoking in films to get women to smoke when they didn't um, and we are now trying to reverse that you won't reverse it all by pricing or by uh, taking the adverts off the packets, you have to have uh, a response to it. And I think, I mean, you mentioned Ryanair. Of course, the big behaviour change that Ryanair effected was they got the other buggers to drop their prices. And in fact, what they then did was change their yield thing. I fly to Aberdeen all the time. Uh, if I book early, I know the EasyJet price is going to be cheapest. If, but if I book late, British Airways nearly always beats them. So people are getting smart to some of the ways that they get round it. There's one last bit from the bottom up. When I was a boy racer, I had a Peugeot 205. Still,
5: surely? Yeah, still. (laughs) I had a Peugeot 205,
7: which was the most stolen car in London. And uh, a policeman said to me, I said, how do you stop your car being stolen? He says, there's two things. One, either make it look grubby, because it's not cool. But if you absolutely want to make sure that no boy racers will steal it, put a child seat in it because they can't undo them. And it worked. <laughs>
5: I think it was a, yes.
8: I thought, um, <clears throat> Mitch and, um, sorry, um, I, I thought that Simon and Ed uh, neatly described uh, the actual elephant in the room, um, but from completely different aspects. And the elephant in the room, in, in, in Ed's case, is a complete failure of government at any level to respond to what is cycling, at any level. And in, in Simon's case, a complete failure by government to recognize that they are actually, uh, in doing nothing, encouraging Ryanair. I mean, it's absolutely staggering that the tax regime is designed to encourage an airline in an age when we're trying to save the planet to allow people to advertise in the Daily Telegraph for £10 fares to, to um, Ibiza. Uh, this, is, this is crazy, absolutely mad, and, and clearly... There has to come a moment when organic change, which I would argue cycling is all about, um, has to influence decision-making, and it isn't. Uh, I mean, if you took cycling in the urban areas as a movement and you were to number it, we're talking in, in London in terms of hundreds of thousands of people, um, th- that, that should represent the power of change, but it doesn't. What it's led to has been a very slight reduction in fatalities because of mass. Cars are taking notice. But it's also led to an absolute uh, era of jungle warfare. Every day on a bicycle is warfare with a thing which can kill you. And there is no parity whatever between the single person on the bicycle and the single person uh, in a cake tin that weighs uh, three quarters of a tonne. And this is an unbelievably dangerous combination. And in any other walk of life, government would take action. But it steadfastly refuses to take action. When I first cycled to work 40 years ago, I'd be lucky to see three bicycles on my way to work. I now see between 60 and 100. This is mad, absolutely mad. And most cyclists, if you ask them, have an incident at least three times a week in which they could have been either seriously injured or killed. Literally. Literally. And that is a mad state of affairs, but there will be no action and I don't know why there won't be any action. There is no likelihood at all in the next decade that anyone will do anything at all about cycling because they think it's about paint on the road or signs or whatever, but it isn't. It's actually about developing infrastructure which enable hundreds of thousands of people to go peacefully about their work. Just
1: to follow up on that, why do you think organic change is not making any difference or influence on decision making? and therefore what should be done if organic change, then you need something more coercive? Well, we've tried
8: coercive. We've tried um, the, the, the bike-ins around the roundabout in Waterloo and the rest of it. It has absolutely no effect, whatever. You, you can get you know, um, 10,000 cyclists to turn out uh, for some kind of a manifestation, but that doesn't do anything either. But there is no prospect, I, d- I don't know. I, we've reached that point where government has failed and where the mass is having no influence. And that's a a dangerous state of affairs, because A, people will get killed, uh, and, and B, you may begin to roll back what is a sensationally good movement, something which is incredibly good for the city. We all know what the answer is. The answer, in fact, is to purge the city of single occupancy cars in the first instance. There's no excuse for them under any circumstances during the working day. Um,
1: Lorraine, would you like to follow up and then make um, yeah, sure if you can follow I, up I complete, with um, Mark's
4: point? I completely agree that there's um, issues of criminal manslaughter that should be brought against TfL because encouraging cycling without actually the infrastructure is a real problem. And the argument that critical mass will slide the traffic down was a really poor argument um, without laws to to protect people. And I think that. At the moment, what I see in the cycle um, groups I engage with is that there is real militancy and the times obviously have made a very big contribution. Um, I want to go back to your point. I, I do agree that, that you have to have um, legislation and you have to also have you know, bottom-up movements. But actually, they have to be fun. So you have to ask yourself not just what you want less of but what you want more of. And I, I, I sometimes think the initiatives that I've, I've seen go wrong is that they focus on one at the expense of the other, and that's the problem. Thank you.
1: Um, Mitch, would you like to respond to Mark's point?
0: Sure. Uh, your point's well taken. And um, I think that, you know, without meaning to be dismissive, at one level you can talk about behaviour change with respect to the way people shop or travel. I mean, at the other, you talk about behaviour change in terms of how do we empower women? And one of our organization's goals is to find ways to empower women, destigmatize HIV. But you know, the great behavior change is how do we change gender rights, and how on the African continent do we ensure that women get educated and that they have opportunities for employment. And the biggest you know social um, change, the greatest behavior change, will be you know changing things at that level. So that I, I agree with you. I mean, the big issue with HIV we face often is that women are disempowered, and so the social change we're trying to generate is. Attitudes towards women.
2: Yeah, I just I wanted to ag- agree with John really about the, f- the failure of political leadership on um, on, on aviation and uh, uh, in in respect to uh, climate change. I think it, it, it's broader than aviation. I think that it's absolutely crazy that we have uh, you know an aviation policy where on Monday. London South End, London's newest airport, opened with new easy jet flights to short-haul destinations that are all served by other airports in, in London. And yet, we also have a policy that is preventing any new flights uh, to China from Heathrow, which is our, you know, our only hub airport and the only one that could, could support that. It is clear that there is going to be a need for more travel between the UK and China over the next 50 years. I should think that would be apparent to anyone. What is happening is that those flights are going to go via Paris or Amsterdam rather than be closest to the, uh, the biggest centre of demand, which is, is London and the South East. So what are you I, I, asking for, sir? Well, what I'm actually asking for is, yeah, I am asking for intervention because I think that on the whole of the climate debate, actually what's happening is that politicians get involved up until the point at which there's any political pressure. You look at it on the fuel duty escalator and then they run away again. And... Actually, I, I think that the government is fairly bad at predicting and picking winners and losers in terms of what people want to do, what they want to spend their carbon on, because probably everyone in this room, if they had a, a carbon budget, would choose to spend it in a slightly different way because of what they actually value and is most important to them. So you know, I think that aviation inevitably uh, you know, has to get more expensive, as do any other carbon-intensive uh, industries uh, in the UK. And I think that... Rather than just taking a very crude approach that stops certain projects and then lets other less noticeable ones continue, we need a much broader approach to carbon that gives people the opportunity to sit within an overall carbon cap but pick what is most important to them.
3: Just to add to that really quick because I think this taps into what was fundamentally missing from the debate last night when we kicked off the whole weekend which was, you know, there is two fundamental strands of reality we have to deal with here. One is that the UK has a climate change bill which legally binds us to an 80% cut in carbon emissions by 2050 and we've got 9 billion people by mid-century. Now for all of them to lead sustainable lives we do need this this gulf of leadership filled. Now whether that's about moderating Carbon, or whether it's about um, encouraging things like cycling in the city, that that gulf is fundamentally not being filled at the moment. And uh, it's a huge opportunity being squandered because there must be political capital that can be made by being honest and frank about the challenges we face and coercing us in a kind of collective fashion um, to to address a lot of those. Uh, And you know, just as a very quick example, you know, the fact that there are 500,000 journeys made by bike in London every day and only 120,000 people driving into central London. Now, already there's a, a, another disconnection there because that should be a political lobby group you could then activate uh, and, and use to kind of, to, especially in the mayoral elections which are coming forward.
1: Can we open up to the floor? There's
9: a Going to something a little more fundamental about change. What I'd like to hear from the panel, uh, I'm reminded of an uh, article and subsequent novel in the uh, book that he wrote, Robert Karen, uh, uh, on shame. What is the role of shame in behavior change? He was very, made a compelling case for bringing it back, making it more fashionable, <laughs> that shame has a role in changing our behavior. And I'm, I'm reminded re- recently of you know, the, the mortification of the Japanese in Fukushima you know that this, the, the lack of transparency and some of the uh, oversight that was missing on these uh, nuclear plants, which you know are basically now non-existent in that country because of that. Uh, uh, but but I'd be interested to hear um, fundamentally what what you feel about.
1: I'd just like to jump in on that. In the Financial Times, we've had a lot of op-eds recently um, talking about the need to have shame of the bankers. In fact, we've just got the front page story today is about, you know, Barclays and tax. And they basically say actually shame is a more effective way of attacking this. And that's probably what led it in terms of Stephen Hester did not want to be the next Fred Goodwin and have his social life completely transformed by being the sort of villain in the piece when he wasn't really the villain. So I think shame is becoming a far more powerful thing in terms of then regulation and affecting bankers' bonuses. I agree.
4: I agree. But I, I agree. Um, Apple, you know, there's a massive campaign at the moment. Apple's CEO um, is embarrassed about the amount of profits they have, billions. And the Chinese situations where workers are killing themselves because the conditions are so revolting has launched a campaign, an internet campaign, that I hope will shame them with young people so that the brand is not so sexy. Because at St. Martins, where I'm located, what's wonderful is that our, our students across the board, there's some change. They seem to want to work on social design projects. They seem to choose these as elected um, uh, things that they study. And Apple, everywhere I look, I see Apple Mac computers. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that that audience and that consumer base... Uh, will change their, their attitude towards Apple, for example, and maybe that will produce the change that's needed. Yeah,
0: sure. yeah, um, we're associated with an organisation that works in Africa in war zones and um, trying to deal with the sexual atrocities that take place by soldiers in war zones. What they've done is they've gone in and met with these soldiers and through uh, conversations and play acting, they've tried to um, bring home to the notion that these soldiers, that the, the, the sexual assaults are, are, are mothers and sisters that are people that they could be close to and have been able to change some of the practices of these soldiers so that they're not committing the atrocities they were committing in the past. But it comes through shame. It comes through a sense of connection. And again, I think so much of you know what I've been trying to talk about is that driving behavior change is about forming connections. And in my realm, it's social connections. It may be commercial connections, but it's making it real. It's making it personal and I think that's where we're able to start to generate the kinds of changes we're seeking.
2: I think, there's, um, I think it's, it's a very important part of it because um, there's, there's an excellent book that um, was out last week by um, someone called Professor Mark Pagel, who's an anthropologist that's Who's looking at what actually makes us human? What is it that that caused us 160,000 years ago to really sort of explode onto the global scene in a way that no other previous uh, Homo uh, species or, or hominid had? And he talks about the importance of uh, of, of in Homo sapien evolution of. Um, being part of the group and there being an acceptability as to, um, or an understanding as to what is acceptable behaviour within the group as well. So I think very deep within us, um, there is an understanding that if there, if if you know society as a whole frowns upon something, that I think that would have a very powerful behavioural effect. My one word of caution is is. Who decides what is acceptable and and what isn't? And I think too often in the past, actually, shame has been directed in a way that actually isn't supported by the evidence, or has been um, has been instigated by certain you know establishment organisations, whether it be be the church or, or or leaders in in politics that perhaps doesn't actually um, uh, work in the in the modern world.
1: I just want to get back to the question. Why did you? Um what do you think Shane would be useful for?
9: Whether it's about you know, a simple process of recycling in your home. I, I mean, I, that, you know, I feel guilty. I mean, you often, the Roper organization uses that question you know, uh, as uh, an indicator of public activity. But the question is really a, a, a bogus one, because everybody says they recycle. But then when you ask, do you think your neighbor recycles, they say <laughs> no. You know? and, and so the idea, I think, is uh, to your point about who decides it's It's become less fashionable uh, for decades to judge people and for stigma to you know we've kind of erased this uh, idea that um, you know there is a, a uh, that we don't want to judge people and 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 i 'm wondering if some of that is a, is a, that there's a balance in in bringing some of that back shame and, and, and judgment um, of, on the community level we've we've gone You know, no one is really a steward of community anymore. You can't get a mortgage from your local bank anymore. You get it from a global corporation who doesn't know who you are. You can't be a farmer and go get a loan for a crop. You know, we we don't have that sense of community uh, that used to kind of, you know, divorce was not, you know, in the community was always stigmatized and other things, other behaviors. But does that go to, you know, a larger scale on environmental concerns, how we live in the planet. Um, you know, at some point, do we just feel bad about it and want it to change our behaviour?
3: I mean, just very quickly on that one. I think that the, the balance between shame and, and the use of emotions like guilt is really, really tricky because guilt can actually just trip people into denial. If you become too accusatory or too front foot, you know, rather than shaming someone, you just make them go. You, you create the cognitive dissonance I sort of referred to um, earlier on. And. I mean, just sort of interesting sort from of a personal perspective. Four years ago, I went around the world without flying, uh, and I've just noticed in, in my circles, and whenever when anyone talks about flying now in my presence, you know, they look sh- ashamed, you know, and sort of, sort of slightly a, you apologetic. It's a good thing? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think it's a good thing because I would say yeah. they're not really changing their behaviour, you know, but they do feel guilty mm-hmm. in my presence now. Whether that's a, a kind of a potential step on the right path. A part, one-man or I don't shaming know. machine. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. I think to that point, the, the, it's clearly a lot easier to set social norms of acceptability when we're in a tribe of 200 people than it is in a, in a, in a global community. But I suppose what's, what's interesting about that is, is within this global community, other are are than other communities that take place within that, you know, that, that may not be geographically co-located, but where people of, of similar views can come together. But
8: this is such a great idea. Imagine the police going around every car in London a big sticker, all stuck the way they do for the, the parking car, uh, which actually asked, did you need to bring this vehicle in? <laughs>
1: what, what a breakthrough.
8: What, could government dare
1: do such What a about thing? activists just doing that? Why does it need to be government doing that? Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm
8: happy to do it. Give, give me some stickers, I'll do it. <laughs>
10: <laughs> okay, can we write that down, new story? No, um, I would like to take a, this um, issue a bit further. Uh, and there was a uh, comment about relationship between values and behavior. One of the value we have today is that somehow humans are superior to all the other species. And therefore, we value the environment only in terms of how useful that is for humans. So, humans are sort of in the ruling position and the environmental uh, situation, the ecology, the other species, they are there to serve human needs. As long as we have this value, this mindset, then whatever these little changes we could make, as uh, sort of bicycling or whatever these little recycling and so on, they are sort of tweaking on the surface. The fundamental thing is that we feel that we can do what we like. We can overfish the oceans, we can cut down the rainforest, we can fly to China anytime we want. This kind of very human imperialism, I think, is at the base. And this is a very difficult to challenge because we are, after all, the beneficiaries. So that's a very fundamental real elephant in the room is are we prepared to value nature in its own right, has nature rights, like we have human rights, do you believe that nature also has rights to exist? Animals have rights, forests have rights, or no? That's a very fundamental issue. I think that's the real elephant in the room.
5: Do you think, uh, just to pick up on that, that do you think that what, is, what, what could, should the balance be between state intervention, taking that kind of strategic leadership, quote-unquote, versus social markets where it becomes the right thing to do because of the conversations that are now possible, the global conversations. Is it a balance of those two things or do you think actually state intervention is counterproductive?
10: I I don't think real change comes from state intervention, in my view. State only rubber stamps when people have changed their values and minds. State comes less, State, because they have to be elected in the end. And if the majority of people don't agree with a particular policy, then they are not going to be elected. So I think we have to create this value change more in a different way. And that's where this type of conference and the journalists and writers and the books and newspapers and television, they, are, they have a role to play to question some of the fundamentals
5: I was only asking the question, because there seemed to be an assumption in the room that, that policymakers should initiate this, and I think you're arguing the reverse. No, I agree yeah,
10: like, be reverse, because I don't think the real leadership of uh, basic transformation will come from 10 Downing Street, it will come from uh, the people. I don't,
4: I don't, I don't think um, regulation works either, but I don't think that, it that it's, it's just personal change that can work. But about the point you're raising, which I think is absolutely fundamental, one of the most important things I've read recently is the different account of altruism. You know, the survival of the fittest has been challenged by scientists. Um, big debates in the new scientists I found very encouraging. I, I think the sort of education that we need to deliver to produce the change you, w- you would like to see, the change I would like to see, is fundamental. And it's about a very different account of, of science. And I, I'm pleased to see it's happening, how, how long it takes to filter through make the difference. I, I, I have no, no comment on at this stage.
3: I mean, and just, and just to add to that, I think, I mean, Satish, you're making, you're making a great point there, which I obviously sympathise with as well. But I think it's interesting, sometimes it's actually the experience of doing the different behaviour that leads to the value change, rather than the other way around. So rather than having this huge top-down or, 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 or bottom-up, whichever way around it occurs, can the behavior actually lead us to reevaluate our values? And I, again, using the cycling um, example is really powerful because as I said, people are cycling in London for loads of different reasons, you know, whether it's time, money, fitness, you know, so you don't have to go to the gym and get tight bump cheeks, you know, whatever aspect of it is, there's lots of different drivers. The fact is once you start cycling, you then become more concerned about air quality and the environmental concerns uh, that, that, that go along with that. So sometimes it's actually engaging people in the behavior change which leads to the value shift.
7: One elephant, Neil Stewart, one elephant in the room is that um, the current debate on behaviour change, we have to recognise that this is being used by parts of the new right to argue against the role that the state and coercion has to play. It's not either or, um, and it's been a great excuse to say that we can't change things until we can achieve universal voluntarism as an excuse for not taking uh, state action. And uh, you can see some of those frustrations working themselves out amongst the libertarian elements of the current government. So let's not be naive about the polarisation. A lot of this debate is being manipulated. It's also not a new debate. Um, You mentioned shame. You know, the churches and previous societies figured out how to change people's behaviour, sometimes by coercion. But what we've seen in our century is the fragmentation and the break-up of that and the depersonalisation of the connection of it. And I've seen it in in my lifetime compared to agricultural communities in the Northeast. There's one other thing that, about modern society that is slightly different, and that's the intermediaries. So John's example about um, cycling and the planners. You see, cycling and roads were owned by the planners, the people that painted the lines. So they had to have a solution in which painting lines as opposed to taking all the lines off the road and getting rid of them and getting rid of the cars. They couldn't conceive that that didn't involve them. But worse, and Mitch, you can try and answer this. I worked for four years for the Royal College of Nursing. I've written a book on nursing. I understand how dangerous the professions are and how resistant they are to change. They are often part of the problem. Um, Nowadays um, uh, people with diabetes will self-medicate. Even quite young children will inject themselves or whatever the patches are. But when that first started happening, the nursing profession and others whose job it was, who had an interest, were extremely resistant to it. So these new professional classes of intermediaries in our modern behaviour change society, they have, to, they have to be tackled. They are obstacles, they are self-interests, and it applies you know, in nursing and health. And the big one in health at the moment is how can you have fat nurses telling people to lose weight, you know?
1: Um, can I just jump in on that? Um, Mitch, and then um, I noticed Mark nodding um, to your comments. So perhaps both of you can respond.
0: To your issue about how do we challenge professionals who may be resistant to change. If you look at the African continent, 25% of the world's disease burden, 3% of the healthcare providers. So the African continent is short about 2 million healthcare providers. And I think what, we're beginning to appreciate there and what's being written into legislation is the importance of what's called task shifting and task sharing that the jobs that are currently being done by doctors need to be done in part by nurses the jobs that are being done by nurses need to be done by other kinds of healthcare workers and I think some of the job satisfaction or the lack of job satisfaction that we see amongst nurses, certainly in Africa, is the frustration they experience by not being able to do the jobs that have been allocated to them. So that when you tell a nurse who used to have a completely busy clinic, 50 patients in the morning, that now she has to do an HIV test and explain the results and administer the drugs and do a CD4 test and... and explain how to feed a baby, she just becomes frustrated and she stops doing everything. And that when you then say, we can change your job by providing a peer educator who will do all of the explanations, her job satisfaction goes up and she becomes a better provider. So that I think if we were to legislate that people in the first world have a different health care experience and that they need to have someone explain to them how to take their insulin, and how to eat better, and how to exercise more, and that that job doesn't fall to a nurse who frankly doesn't have the time, or even the inclination. We may not be, able to create, we may not be creating those challenges that you're fearful of, but we may actually be building a better health system that drives behavior change and generates better health.
1: Well,
6: I, I mean, I entirely agree with the point. I don't think there's anything new about professional cartels preserving their own um, mystique, as it were. So there's absolutely nothing new. But I think if you look at what's going on at the moment in the UK with the, the health bill, which I don't think is a very good bill, but leaving that aside, as much of that is about professional self-protection as it is anything else actually.
10: One big question for me is, in spite of all the environmental discussions, ec- growth, economic growth or growth in economy is still the most dominant uh, paradigm. and. Uh, I don't think we can have unlimited economic growth in a finite planet. And that question hasn't been raised. I think we have to shift our conscience. And I think uh, David Cameron has mentioned this thing and government is starting to do something, but they want to have best, so both were, they, have, they are facing both, both ways. Um, growth in well-being, because after all the well-being is the, the most important thing. And that is starting to happen in our discussions but very little. Economic growth, growth in economy, that is still the obsession. How, what panel think? How can we challenge that? Unless we challenge that, all the other recycling, etc., bicycling, etc., is, is going to be small change, not a big change.
8: But I don't think we're talking in opposite ways. I mean, uh, actually, um, you would get accidental economic growth if you dealt with uh, transport in cities. Uh, If, in actual fact, you banned all private cars from the central areas of all the cities, economic growth would go up exponentially, accidentally, uh, because people would be able to move around infinitely faster. They'd get around to work much faster, on their feet, on their bicycles, on public transport, because there'd be no clog. The clog would have gone. And what, of course, Ken Livingston discovered was that the clog in every city has nothing whatever to do with the electorate who live in that city. They're all people who've come in from outside. And so you could do it overnight with no political pain, Economic gain and
10: better human well-being. Or the whole thing, all in one, one fell swoop. I mean, if we can have a clear, that kind of understanding, that economic growth, which does not damage the environment, then that economic growth is acceptable. But at the moment, that is not the idea.
1: Ed? Yeah, I'm
3: going to say, and that is perfectly possible because there is a big debate amongst the environmental economic fraternity at the moment. Um, You know, you have Professor Tim Jackson with Prosperity Without Growth, but you you can have people like Professor Paul Eakins who are saying, well, it's exactly, it's the quality of that growth. And, you know, as Lorraine was alluding to with the growth of collaborative consumption, you could see economic growth in those types of sectors and industries, which is actually massively dematerialized. You know, it's much more environmentally efficient, yet it's still involving a greater turnover and, ironically, a huge social benefit because it's connecting us back to each other in the communities in which we're based.
2: Yeah, I, I think it, the, the goal has to be the improved environmental performance and sustainability rather than re, you know, reducing economic growth. I think it, you know, if, if, the, if the goal becomes the economic growth, then it, I just don't see how it can win popular sport. And as Ed and John have said, I don't, I don't think it's necessary either. I think you can, you can have both. I, I guess my, my worry is in some ways I think this is easier for corporations and companies than it is for individuals with, without that political leadership. Because um, I, I just, I, unfortunately, I, I, I felt quite pessimistic yesterday afternoon when we were asked the question of, you know, do you think that, uh, uh, that actually companies can do this by themselves? Because I, I don't think they, they can, and I, I don't think they will, without the political leadership. And I really struggle to see where the political leadership will come from. Because, as you say, we, we live in a democracy, and, 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 and on some of these bigger issues the benefits are you know many years in some cases down the line and they're felt by the collective and the disbenefits are felt immediately and by the individuals and i think in our in our current political setup it's quite difficult to see where the leadership is going to come from that will will deliver that change and therefore unfortunately i think part of the behavioral change we will need is is around climate change adaptation and mitigation as well as actually just trying to reduce the, uh, why, the impact.
5: Why don't we, we just have a few minutes left. Why don't we close around this notion of where should legitimate leadership come for this behavioural change agenda? So Mark, I think you had a, a thought. Well, uh, I, anybody I, else? I where should think legitimate... John's
6: point because I mean I don't think it's actually quite as simple as you say. So you can cycle if you're within a certain distance of the town centre But if we're going to really sort this out, you need an integrated policy where actually you find ways of getting people to the point at which they can start cycling. And I I think all the time we sort of confuse form and function. We don't actually think what it is we're trying to achieve. We say we're going to have a rule to do this or a rule to do that. And if we're going to sort out transport, you do actually need an integrated policy, and government has to play a role in that. You've actually got to – you know, people are going to have to drive if there isn't a good train journey. The train is going to have to be affordable you get to a certain distance and then it becomes easy to cycle. I think simply just saying no cars, whilst attractive to those of us who live close enough to cycle, creates a bit of a problem if you're coming in from a long distance. And actually the trains are becoming unaffordable and extremely unpleasant to travel on. So it isn't just quite as simple as just banning it, as it were.
5: Any final thoughts on the le- legitimacy of influence? I
4: think
5: final, final thought.
4: I think there is a sea change in younger people. It was raised yesterday. But i 'm um, trying to address the point of professions because i I do agree that in some of these um, attempts to change the situation, um, you 'll have architects and planners in particular who have particular agendas that are very hard. But in terms of design education, what I see is that in industrial design, um, the young designers I taught always wanted to i don 't know be James Bond or work for Nike, and now they seem to be growing things and designing. Um, permaculture for inside buildings—it's—it's it's a sea changer. It's coming from below, and I think that will have consequence.
3: Coming from below, final thoughts. Um, well, I would concur. Um, I think there's a, there's a idea of the bystander effect when you look at challenges which are so big and enormous and convoluted like sustainability and climate change which require these mass responses um, and the bystander effect you know says if you fall over and hurt yourself in the street you better hope there's someone there to help you because uh, if there's only one person then they'll step in and assist if there's a whole crowd everyone sort of looks awkwardly around and goes oh he's fallen over in the street I really hope someone else goes and helps him and the, the, the enormous scale of these challenges make this create this enormous bystander effect where we all look around and go such a huge, urgent problem. Someone must be doing something about that, right? Um, and unfortunately, that's each of us, every one of us as individuals. And you know, it's 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 become a cliche, but it is about being the change you want to see in the world, uh, and actually stepping up and being counted.
2: Um, I, I think right now, globally, the the biggest um, influencer on behaviour change is economic development and urbanisation in in fast emerging markets. And actually, I feel fairly confident that over time that will lead to greater environmental awareness globally. I think it will lead to a more sustainable development as childbirth rates and and health uh, impacts are improved. The big question is, will it be too late by the time we reach that point?
0: Um, Final word. Um, I guess, for me, the question is, what do we want to achieve? What what is the desired outcome? And in in the realm of health, it's better health for all. And how do we get there? I think we need to... Understand that behavior change is going to be central to that and that to do that we need to build systems that are going to make that work and we're going to need to have shared responsibilities between individuals and between those who are <coughs> creating systems. So, you know, shared responsibility.
1: Um, I just want to sum up a few things which is that obviously we've learned that peers are the best mediators of behavior change and bottom-up is the way to go. Shame may be back in. Um, put a child seat in your car if you don't want your car nicked. And if you're in London, you find a sticker on your car saying, was your journey needed? John Snow has been there, so be (laughs) warned. Um, So I just want to thank all the panel. Thank you very much indeed for uh, such great um, commentary this morning, early in the morning. And thank you for coming.